Ja, Norden. Yes. In a word. Yes. I can I can finally say that now and have it be totally appropriate to the episode. So, yes. Gosh. Yes. Gosh. Have you ever noticed T that my first word always when we intro the podcast is something in the affirmative, usually yes. some version of the word yes? Yes. Patrick Ewing in the lane. Yes. John Starks for three. Gush. And today it's actually appropriate. Alan Houston. Gush. Mar- Marv has joined us today. So welcome to episode 36. Is that where we're at? T? Gush. <laughs> I mean, you, you asked for that one. I mean, come on. <laughs> Finally. By the way, do people even know who, I mean, we're sitting here doing this, cracking ourselves up. Do people even know who Marv Albert is anymore? I mean, is that, is he even like a thing? I don't even, I don't even know if our audience will even understand this reference, but we don't care. We'll do it for, we'll do it for 20 minutes anyway. Who cares? Never stopped us before. Exactly. So exactly. Yeah. You know, when we set out to do uh, two twins in an album, the, the, I don't know how it is for you, T, but like the flood of album choices just it comes like a storm, right? It's just like, oh, I want to do this one, I want to do this one, I want to do this one. And, uh, but, but certainly what you want to do is try and not be so overtly uh, obvious about your favorite bands of all time, right? Because that's just yeah. too easy. Yeah, yeah. But all along the way, as we've made many references to, tonight's band is, you know, there's a one in one A for my favorite bands of all time. And tonight is one of the two. It's time. Let's go. I think it's time for sure. And, and, you know, choosing the album was, was difficult. And we'll talk about that because we'll, we'll do a top five today. Cause I think a top five yes songs is, you know, an interesting exercise for sure. It's an exhausting exercise, but just choosing one album from this band is, is quite an ordeal. And when you think about the, the one we chose does carry, you know, quite a bit of commercial appeal when you think about yes's career. It's also the 11th album they release, but for many, they might think it's the first. And so last week we talked with Faith No More about a couple of things. We talked about that the band existed, you know, long before those might think, you know, Faith No More formed in 1979, but really they didn't break until 11 years later. For Yes, this band was well in existence by the time 90125 came out. But for many in the mainstream, this was their first experience with the group. So there's a couple of things to tackle with this album and in in this band. One is the importance of personnel. And last week we talked about with Faith No More, they, when they lost Jim Martin, the band sort of was never the same afterwards. So we talked a little bit about the context of a loss after last week's album. Well, for today, we're going to talk about an important gain in personnel. And see, you know, I'm always fascinated by that. Band loses a member and then goes in a certain direction. Band gains a member and then goes in a certain direction. Is this, in your opinion, one of the more famous examples of of the gain and then what came from it? Is there anything else that comes to mind in terms of personnel changes that maybe stand out quite as much as Faith No More last week and yes, this week? 
Yeah. I mean, the, uh, yes. Um, so, so, uh, I think that with some of these Prague groups from the seventies, you know, you reach a crossroad when you get to the eighties, right. And it's sort of like, how are we going to stay relevant? How are we going to tap into a new audience? Clearly the, the eighties were the, uh, you know, I mean, it was the Al Franken decade. It was, uh, a lot about indulgence and it was about thinking about yourself and it was about doing things to stay top of mind, relevant and successful. And I think people were willing to kind of do whatever it took to make sure that you were still at the, at the high end of some of those areas. The thing that's interesting, and I think Genesis is a very similar comp here because, you know, you had a very artistic progressive project through the seventies and then you get to the eighties and it's kind of like, I'm not sure that this is something that's, uh, you know, this is either tired or stale or the eighties generation of listeners isn't quite going to understand it the same way as the previous generation of listeners. And we got to do something different. So in a way it's tapping into a new audience in a way, it's also turning your band into a franchise because you start to get this multi-decade era forming of your project and a multifaceted and a multi-dimensional audience that you're now able to tap into. And you're really kind of building for the long game at this point as a band. You know, if you're Wigwam, you said, well, screw it. We're just going to keep playing what we play. We don't care if we're on the radio. We don't care if our band turns into a franchise. And, you know, yes. And I think the best comparison to that would be Genesis kind of said, we want to take to the next step. We want to reach this new audience. We want to turn this band into a franchise and play arenas and, you know, be around for 40 years and all those type of things. And I think that, you know, tonight's album was certainly how Yes reacted to that crossroads for Genesis. It was probably Invisible Touch. You know, you may have seen some shades in it on the self-titled record or on Duke, but um, I think that those two records are pretty comparable in taking a band that really wanted to remain topical, remain relevant, and this is what we got. It's a nice connection to the second point, which is my you know, long time fascination, as you well know, with bands that had nine lives or at least more than one life. And I don't mean like, like, you know, small personnel change or a minor change in sound. I mean, legit different lives of the band. And yes, is certainly in that category. And what we'll look at with 90125 is one life of yes of many. But if you think about it, you mentioned a couple of bands, you know, Genesis, which is, you know, the one in the one A, that's the other one, right? So it's yes and Genesis, as most of our listeners well know. But mm-hmm. Genesis, multiple lives, Peter Gabriel thing, Phil Collins thing, totally different changes, totally different styles of, of sound. King Crimson, the beginning era, you've got the 80s thing, you've got the in-between, which, which we looked at in the episode looking at Red. Pink Floyd, great example. Well, I mean, kind of. King Crimson never went all in mainstream. You know, I mean, King Crimson never created an invisible touch or 90125. But but to your point about lives, they certainly, in this weird way, staying true to what they were and never getting too big or too popular um, certainly stood the test of time, to your point. They definitely weren't mainstream, but the 80s Crimson doesn't sound a thing like in the court of the Crimson King or Red. I mean, it's not even close. And Adrian Ballou came in and just totally morphed the sound into something yeah. 
Yeah. Totally modern, right? Moody Blues, good example, you know, different lives. And the one that's fascinating, you mentioned Rush. You know, Rush didn't change personnel. It's one of the yeah. magical things about Rush, but they sure as hell had different lives. You yeah. know, 70s Rush, 80s Rush. By the 90s, they had turned into kind of this lean, mean rock band. And into the 2000s, they were almost flirting with like metal. I mean, their, their albums yeah. were so heavy. Right. And so th- there's always a fascination with that. And I think that if you're going to get into music and be passionate about certain artists, it's fulfilling and it's never ending interesting to follow bands that had different lives. And so tonight we'll just look at one life of yes, but let's look at our lives T what's going on in our lives. Because you mentioned the eighties is the Al Franken decade, but as we mentioned, the 2020s is the T decade. Oh, no question. No I question. Mean, I think people really need to start thinking more about, you know, how does this impact T? You know? Yeah. I mean, really people need to start thinking less about themselves and more about how does this impact T? How does, how does what I'm doing right now impact T? So yeah, I agree. It's going to be a great decade, buddy. Let's see how round and round impacts T as we take the show round and round. All right, T, three albums that are spinning round for you. Well, thanks, Nubs. I, uh, I'll uh, start off with uh, a band that we've featured before, and that is the Beastie Boys. And I just wanted to check out Ill Communication a little bit this week, just to, just to see how it feels. Still not as good as Check Your Head. Still probably wouldn't listen to it over Paul's Boutique, just because Paul's Boutique is so interesting. But it's third in line. It's a great record by those guys and great instrumental stuff. And, you know, they continued kind of, I think, the instrumentation piece and those type of things that they had started with Check Your Head. So it was a nice revisit. The second, a little something you might like and, uh, and appreciate, Nub, and that's uh, a little album called Ah, the name is Bootsy, baby. Oh, and, I love uh, that record. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's by uh, Bootsy Collins, who, uh, who always made sure to, to be on the one, right? You got to be on the one. One of my favorite YouTube clips of all time ever. Well, you know, that was a classic nubs, uh, YouTube favorite, you know, um, but yeah, great record. I mean, great. Uh, you know, obviously this was kind of his, uh, spinoff from the, uh, parliament project and he did a little solo thing and, uh, it's great. It's a great listen. Uh, and it started to get a little warmer. Uh, up here in uh, Michigan, you know, these last couple of weeks. So Bootsy and then my third choice, which is Fish, started to kind of come into the mix a little bit. Now, this is a live record called A Live One. I, I just, you know, I have a lot of Fish recordings, uh, pretty big fan, but I, I haven't heard anything that from a production sense or a execution sense captures the band this well. I mean, it's a perfect collection. Not too many songs. Uh, a couple, you know, they've got uh, You Enjoy Myself and a couple of long pieces in there. Long, nice, really amazing live version of Stash. But other than that, you know, you get a nice variety of some of their shorter, more to the point tunes. But it's just a great sounding live record. Really, really well done. And we got to see them on that tour back in 19, I think, 96 or 7, maybe, which was a good time had by all. So Fish is third on the list. And that's what's round and round for me. What is round and round for you, buddy? You know, spring is on its way when T breaks out the fish. All right. 
Yes, so sir. The sun, the sun is shining. Yeah, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. First for me is the second album by Periphery, uh, which is called Periphery Two, but I think the full name is This Time It's Personal. It's a double album. Periphery is an outstanding prog metal band. Still have not seen the band live, but cannot wait to once the pandemic is over. And maybe we might go to a show again. T. Maybe I don't know. Tough to say. Oh, it's going to happen. It is going to happen. And we, I'm thinking about going to like even the most ridiculous, like if uh, Yanni comes, I'm going, I'm there. Uh, Not that Yanni's ridiculous in any way, but like, you know, Celine Dion, something like that, you know, maybe uh, Babs Streisand, you know, shout out to Rupert Holmes. I I might just go just because it's a show. Why not? Exactly. Exactly. I'm not going to be, not going to be too discriminatory when it comes to that first show once it happens. So, so yeah, I've been digging periphery, uh, demons and wizards, the album by Uriah heap recently picked up an eight track version of that. Cause it's I'm, a great record. Great record. It, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. It really is 1972, just the opening track, the wizard and the overall sound of it. Mick Box's guitar. I love demons and wizards. It to me, it's the best Uriah heap album by far, but there's a lot of good stuff from Uriah, Uriah heap. That's a very underrated band. And, uh, Third, a little jazz fusion for you. This is the band Passport, led by Claus Doldinger, who longtime fusion guy, saxophone player. And he always performed under the name Passport. And they created a slew of albums. Second Passport, again, from 1972. Uh, really, really good stuff. Good instrumental jazz fusion and uh, sort of cosmic music, if you will. So you're breaking out the fish. I'm breaking out the fusion. Perhaps spring is on its way. So that is what is round and round for me. So T, let's... Uh, Let's dive a little further into 90125, including how on earth they came up with this album name, right? Because when I first heard of this album as a young lad, I was like, what's with that title? But actually, it's pretty simple where they got it from. So let's do that little dive into 90125 as we get into the nerdy deets done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? All right, 90125, which, just to answer the question up front, is actually the catalog number of the album on Atco Records. So not quite as creative as a name as one might think. They simply just lifted the uh, catalog number. But it was actually 90124. I don't know if you caught that. I I caught a little bit of that during the old research here for the old podcast, baby. Uh, It was 90124, and I believe that the number five is universally better represented because they knew this was going to be a global deal on the deal. And, uh, and so they just bumped it up to 90125 and they, they thought it, you know, flowed better and came across better universally. So, all right, well, there you go. There you go. Don't say you didn't learn anything today. Yeah, there you exactly. Hey, we, we don't call them nerdy deets for nothing T. So (laughs) November 7th, 1983, that was the release date. You and I were three years old. Just little, little, little wheeze, if you will, little, little guys, you know, little twerps. And, uh, it's it, still it, are kind of right. I mean, still are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the album went on to be Yes's most successful album commercially. We'll get to some of that, but the, the real key part of the album is the personnel, as we mentioned at the top. So John Anderson, who had left the band and was not part of the album drama returned to yes, really late in the game. Uh, to sing on 90125. And, and from that, they decided to call it Yes. The, the band was originally going to be called Cinema. Even when Trevor Rabin joined, they were going to title it Cinema and kind of create a new band. But once John came back, he, apparently he sort of came, you know, uh, begging back. It's, I love these songs. Can I sing on them? And, 
And then it was obvious that this was going to be a Yes album. But it was the arrival of Trevor Rabin, the South African musician on guitars, keyboards, vocals, who really made 90125 happen. His voice, his guitar playing, his songwriting is all over this thing. We'll certainly get to that when we talk about the most famous song on the album, because it's really Trevor Rabin who made all of this happen. And Steve Howe, again, had left the band after the drama album. So as Chris Squire and Alan White were trying to figure out how to press forward, they actually did some work with Jimmy Page in a, a, a group that was going to be called XYZ. But it, there was like management issues that didn't allow it to press on, which probably means they couldn't figure out the money, you know? And so this was, this was the eighties, baby. It was all about the Benjis, right? (laughs) Exactly. So enter Trevor Rabin, who had already released a solo album and Chris Squire, the only member that really was in yes for every album and every tour, as long as he was alive, he tragically passed away a few years back, but the Chris Squire was always there if it was yes. And uh, he was here, of course, on bass and vocals, Alan White on drums. So, you know, Alan White took over for Bill Bruford after close to the edge and was with the band the whole way and still with the band today. So Alan White is back there on the drums and percussion. And then one of the interesting underrated personnel aspects of 90125 is Tony K rejoined the band on Hammond organ and piano. Tony K is actually an original member of yes. He was on the first three albums up through the yes album. And then he was replaced with a guy named Rick Wakeman. So yes, kind of discovered that Wakeman was available they sort of unceremoniously, you know, let Tony K go from the group. And Chris Squire said when they were putting together this new lineup, they thought that maybe Tony K would be a good fit um, because of his use of more modern types of uh, keyboards and things like that. So, so that's the, the lineup for 90125. But one of the key personnel that is not in the band is producer Trevor Horn. So Trevor Horn, you know, obviously now has gone on to be one of the most famous and commercially successful album producers in the world. But at this time, he was simply a guy who was a member of the Buggles, who we all know by Video Killed the Radio Star. So Trevor Horn was part of that. But the other thing that you got to remember about Trevor Horn, he was a member of Yes. So on the album before 90125 Drama, Trevor Horn was the lead vocalist. And he sang on that album and he toured with the band. And, you know, when John Anderson came back, obviously this new yes came along and Trevor Horn was no longer going to be the singer, but they were on such good terms with him that they wanted to continue to work with him and have him produce this album. So T, I know you're fond of the drama album as I am as well. So it's kind of cool that Horn was just coming off of being the band singer, but then also, you know, stayed on to produce this album and his production is vital to this. Yeah, record. really good. And and yeah, drama is a cool, a cool yes record. It's a it's an interlude, you know, it's kind of a unique record in the middle of their career that, you know, had a very different sound, very different personnel, but was still yes. I mean, as long as Chris Squire was around, they were still going to be yes because of his voice, his bass playing, the true, true backbone of the band. I mean, I, you know, I love Chris Squire, um, but uh, I guess they tried to have Horn do the vocals initially as part of the project. And some of these songs were just, you know, these Trevor Rabin songs, um, you know, were just too difficult, you know, for him to sing. And clearly they decided that Rabin's vocals, Squire's vocals, and then of course, eventually John Anderson's vocals as he returned to the project, were going to suit these songs the best. For sure. So uh, 90125, as we mentioned, was the band's most successful album to date. It went triple platinum in the United States. So that's sales of more than 3 million copies, which, you know, nowadays is 
see it's like so unheard of, you know, for an album to sell that many copies. But even at its time, Triple Platinum was considered incredibly successful. It achieved gold and platinum status in other countries, Canada, Germany, Argentina, the Netherlands. In the UK, it went gold selling 100,000 units. So it was most successful in the US for sure. And uh, charted very well, top 10 in, in a number of different markets and, and countries around the world. It had four singles. The lead single was Owner of a Lonely Heart, also the lead track. This is a song that really made 90125 happen from a commercial standpoint. It turned the band into an arena band, which they never really were before. I mean, they, they had done really well touring, but this took them to a new stratosphere, allowed them to play larger venues and uh, have, you know, kind of a more modern production and some of the things that Yes would see throughout the 80s. Uh, Leave It was the second single. It Can Happen was released as a single in June of 1984. And the final single was Hold On, which was released in November of 84. So you look at kind of a year-long life for this band in terms of, you know, singles. And it's almost as if, you know, we're purposely doing this. But in the last episode that I hosted, the Flock of Seagulls episode, we talked about that their song DNA won the Grammy for best rock instrumental performance. Well, 90125 features the song Cinema, which, yes, won the Grammy Award for best rock instrumental performance. So how about and that? Did they, and did they give the Grammy back now or did they <laughs> keep the Grammy? I think they kept it, didn't they? They kept it. They yeah. kept it. Yeah. 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 You, bet. you bet. So that is kind of amazing. So I think that wasn't Flock of Seagulls 1983 as well. Yeah, yeah, one in eighty. You've done back to back nineteen eighty three records that both won Grammys because they kept. They didn't give the Grammy back. Now they kept it um, for instrumental rock songs. How about that coincidence, eh? It's as if we plan this stuff, which trust me, we don't. So no, that's the nine zero one two five story. T, I want to hear your story in terms of you know. <laughs> in, your twin brother might have had a small role to play in this, but maybe not. But let's check out your wondrous story. And by the way, cue the yes on the wondrous stories right now. It's again, everything's coming together today because <laughs> right. we have, that's the yes that you hear singing about wondrous stories. So right, T, right. I cannot wait to hear your 90125 wondrous story. Let's kick it. T, what is your yes story? Well, good job by you for, uh, you know, calling your own number here prior to my wonder story. I mean, you know, that was pretty bold for you to say that I'm probably going to mention you, but, uh, but you're right. You're right. When you're right, you're right. And you, you're always right. Um, you were certainly into this band and not because of 90125, but because of the kind of earlier work. and. I didn't understand any of that, of course, because we've talked about many times on the old podcast here that you were listening to old man, old geezer prog music. And I was like listening to Alice in Chains in the next room, like, what's with you, man? You know, I was, you know, um, 12 trapped in a 40 year old body and now I'm 41 trapped in a 12 year old mind. So it's like, yeah, it's gone full circle. It's sort know? of a 12 year old body, too, I would say. Right. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, no, but, you know, clearly one of those things that that now not only do I completely understand, but I completely uh, enjoy, you know, and uh, while I haven't tipped over and, you know, fully into the uh, sort of uh, hardcore prog stuff that that you still like, I mean, certainly 
digging into early yes and early Genesis, um, you know, has been a great thing and certainly something you helped with. There are two things that really come to mind. The first was seeing the band on the talk tour, which was just a treat because they had pretty much all members intact at that point. Um, I think from the 90125 recording, right? It was, it was, this, it was the exact lineup. Yeah. The only addition was Billy Sherwood, who would later become a full member of Yes, joined on stage for guitars and keyboards and stuff. But yeah, it was the 90125 lineup. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for some reason, I so you and I haven't talked about this, but do you remember what probably the like most energetic memorable like people just got super freaking into it song of the night was and it wasn't owner of a lonely heart yeah no so i mean that show was such a huge moment in my life so you would think i would be able to i thought i thought you were going to jump this in like two seconds so there were several memorable moments but I, i remember city of love being a pretty big jam that night. I remember that one was pretty good. Night that was falling was and it just sounded mm-hmm. really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That one was pretty good, but that's not it. You, can you give me one more guess at it? Sure. And it was, it was not on, owner of a lonely heart. That owner of a lonely heart never really pulled off live quite as well as the studio, you know, but um, I'm just going through the set list in my mind. I'll give you a hint. It was the first song of the encore roundabout. So they came out. First song of the end, because they played like three songs during the encore. Yeah. They came out and they played Hold On and everybody went crazy, you know? And obviously it's a very up-tempo kind of danceable, singable song, but it was so cool. It was like, oh my God, this of all songs just got people up and singing and like putting their fist in the air. I mean, it was great. It was really cool. It, It was like one of those unexpected. I mean, I knew that that song was well liked and obviously it's track two on and tonight's album, but um, that one just, I remember that one just got sent everybody into a frenzy. It was awesome. And then the second thing, which I, you know, I apologize. I'm probably stealing this one from you, but you know, it's the advantage of, of being the, the co-pilot of the episode, I guess, right. The, uh, the first officer of the episode. And that is the, uh, the laser disc, right. Um, uh, well, and what was it called? Yes story yes years yes years yes years okay and this was a laser disc um and we were probably was this around like 13 14 years old probably if i remember correctly 12 13 14 younger than that yeah because it was documenting the union tour which was 1991 yeah yeah so yeah i mean we were watching that you know definitely in kind of sixth grade heavy seventh grade yeah it's a great history of the band you know took you from the beginning and through all the different lineups and through the Trevor Rabin edition. And then, yeah, to nubs to your point, it was really sort of documenting this, this union tour, which brought back basically everyone who had ever been a member of the band. Yes. And they were playing songs from all the different eras, you know, new, old, and in between. It was a really cool tour and a cool project. And boy, we watched this laser disc constantly you know i mean we've talked about a year and a half life of metallica and some of the other things that were you know sort of reoccurring watches for us but the yes laser disc i mean i don't even want to know how many times we probably got through that start to finish but it was one that we really enjoyed and and it was fun because it was one of your favorite bands but it really helped me kind of understand them more a little bit and 
And I really liked this later, you know, era of Yes. And obviously it covers off on all that, um, but did help me even get into some of their early work as well. So those are the two things that come to mind uh, for me when you talk about this, this wonderful band. So Nubs, I'll turn it back to you. This is going to be probably much more interesting than mine, but uh, what's your uh, wonder story with Yes? I am glad you mentioned that show because that was the first time both of us saw the band. And I don't know if you've seen them since. I've probably seen the band, you know, 10 times since then in a lot of different incarnations. Have you seen us since then? I don't think so. No, I think that, I think that was the only time I saw them, Yeah, yeah which would have been, I guess that was talk tour. So that would have been 94. It was 94, June 25th, 1994. There's okay. certain dates I, I that live in infamy for me. So, <laughs> you know, so that was big seeing them live, but really rewind the tape back to when we were little munchkins and our mom had a pretty decent 45 collection with picture sleeves, you know, and I remember the story about when you and I went into mom's record collection and tore them up and threw them all over the room and everything. They were just Frisbees, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, exactly. that's, yeah, just Frisbees that came in these cool little sleeves. And so <laughs> she had a pretty good 45 collection with picture sleeves. And one of the 45 she had was own of her lonely heart. And, you know, you couldn't really go many places in 1983, 84, without hearing that song. And we were three, four, five years old and music was even important to us. Then we, we loved listening to it and we were kind of curious about it. And so for, for me, that really was the beginning of just knowing there was a band called yes. And obviously at four years old, we have no idea about their impact long before owner of a lonely heart came out, but that song was something I really liked as a kid. You know, it just had a nice groove to it. Nice melody. It was very simple. And uh, I remember the, the middle section. We'll get into it when we go track by track. But, you know, there's some things about the middle that were kind of cool when you were a kid. And so that was really the beginning. And a lot like Genesis, as we've talked about, it was sort of a, a record store thing. You know, I was I would always just explore the record shop like it was this heaven of, of stuff, you know, and was fascinated by everything. And you go to the yes section and you just notice there were like, you know, all these albums and things that clearly came out back in the day. And so one day, very young, one of our early repeat the beat visits, I was like, I'm going to buy a yes album today. And like most things in that era, it was all about curiosity. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't able to go to Discogs and look at the different pressings and I wasn't able to go to YouTube and listen to it or Amazon music. I mean, you bought it because you were interested and because the cover art was cool. And so I bought Fragile. And what a perfect choice because I could have bought anything, yeah. you know? Yeah. My first Genesis album I bought was, and then there were three. And again, cover art, name. And that was sort of a miss because it was, you know, that's not a great entrance to the band. Fragile is like an ideal entrance to Yes. I mean, it's almost the perfect first album. And so, you know, Roundabout, Heart of the Sunrise, you know, a lot of the really famous songs on. The, on Fragile became instantly the most important songs in my life. And that just opened up the floodgates. So then you buy Close to the Edge and you figure out what's going on there. Oh my gosh, there's only three songs on it. And then Relayer, oh, there's only three songs on that, right? And so like we talked about at the top of the show, just putting the pieces together of this band with all these lives and the endless kind of you know curiosity of that being fulfilled. and it allows you to really dig deep into a band over time, right? You, you don't just discover the three albums they made in a week. 
you're literally buying these things and listening to them over the course of years. And that's just what this turned into. I was lucky enough to be alive and, and active in terms of music listening when the band was still around. So got to, you know, when talk came out, we were very much, you know, it was very relevant at the time and got to see him on that tour. But then eventually yes, became kind of more nostalgic thing and you go see them in different lineups and they, now they're playing albums and, John Anderson isn't even in the band anymore, but he's broken off and done a thing with Rabin and Wakeman. So you got like these two versions of yes. So it's become a little ridiculous right now. But, you know, at the time, I mean, this band was so incredibly important to me. It was important in terms of my development, in terms of playing music, listening to music, huge band just for my ear, you know, to know that there's other things out there that, that are different and unique and but I would say it all does come back to the owner of a Lonely Heart 45, which makes tonight's album really relevant because it's not my favorite Yes album by any means, but it is the one that got a lot of people started in their Yes journey. So let's continue that journey as we dive into this record. Are you ready, T, for a little 90125? Let's go, baby. 80s. I'm always down. Let's go. All right. Well, hey, let's drop the needle, T. Do it. The beginning of 90125 starts with something that sounds a little bit like <laughs> that, was that? That, was that was pretty good. That was okay. Yeah, that was okay. <laughs> Not an easy one to recreate verbally, but you did pretty good. And there must have been a lot of uh, listeners in 1983 that heard the first two seconds of this album and thought, what the hell did I buy? But then the trademark guitar riff comes in by Mr. Trevor Rabin of Owner of a Lonely Heart. And it all kicks in. So pretty catchy stuff, T. I mean, I, you know, if I'm Echo Records and I'm thinking about what this new yes is going to be like, and you hear this as the potential first single, you got to be feeling pretty good about the commercial appeal of this Rabin guy and what he's going to bring to the band. What, what are your thoughts on this really important song in the yes history? Well, is it fair to say that's so Rabin? I think that's fair to say. I like I it. I mean, can we yeah. do that? We can, can we do, do that, that one. <laughs> Here's what's so Raven about this one is that underneath guitar part, which actually is also the bridge. Really love how they use that. It's, it's palm muted with a clean tone. It's played faintly underneath several different sections to kind of give it that ongoing flavor. It leads the breakdown and bridge which is a fantastic part of the song. And then you build it back into a chorus. That's the part that I always listen for. That's the part that I love. I mean, the main riff is what it is, but if it weren't for that underneath guitar picking piece, this wouldn't be as good of a song. It's all Rabin, right? I mean, he brought this one in. He, you know, you mentioned nine lives. This band kind of almost had nine lives during this actual recording. I mean, there were different iterations, different members, but the one thing that was certain whether they were called cinema, whether they were called yes, whether they had John Anderson involved, whether they didn't, whoever was playing keyboards. One thing was certain was that Trevor Rabin was delivering. And these were songs that if he hadn't 
joined cinema slash yes, he probably would have done as a solo project and who knows how it would have sold, who knows how popular it would have been. But I think the band collectively was very smart in saying, this is good material. Let's try and use it to our benefit as the yes franchise. Rabin was smart in saying these are good songs and I probably could get them out to more people with a band uh, that isn't made up of studio musicians or whatever, because he was no drummer. And uh, there were a lot of smart decisions made here. And I think it culminated with Owner of a Lonely Heart as the opening track as a huge monster hit and a song that'll probably live on forever. It's certainly a pop song, but I think the magic is in the bridge. When it breaks down to that Rabin riff that do, 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 do. I mean, very cool picking there. And then that kind of, I mentioned it earlier, but that da, boom, 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 you know, it's like, it's, it's almost like dancey, you know what I mean? And who would have ever equated that with yes, but there, there is, there was a 12 inch remix of this song. And like, you know, after close to the edge and relayer came out, would you have ever guessed that that band would eventually have a 12 inch <laughs> remix of any song? You know? Yeah. Well, and you mentioned Trevor Horn. He, he deserves a lot of the credit for this. And obviously he was a forward thinker as a musician and, and as a producer, most importantly, obviously to this. And I think a lot of those things probably have his fingerprints on them. And, and it was very creative and, and very timely and, and relevant to the sound at the time. Uh, and they used it in a good way. So if you ask most like mainstream listeners out there, you know, what's your top five yes songs? Owner of a Lonely Heart would probably be number one on a lot of it. It'd be that or Roundabout, you know, because really those are the two hits from the band. But see, I want to know your top five yes songs. It, it's, it's like, oh, okay. you know, looking at an entire universe of a catalog and trying to find these very select needles in the haystack. Right. So yeah, I'm interested in that. So, you know, let's go five to one. And if it's not numbered perfectly, that's totally fine. But uh, let's just kind of go back and forth and, and compare sure. notes here and see, cause which life, you know, do, do your favorite yes songs come from? And I have a feeling I might know yours, but that's, that's why you do this exercise, you know? So we're going in order then, five to one. We'll do your best. It, it's not okay. going to be perfect. No, that's uh, fine. I mean, listen, cracking the top five first, and this is just, there's no question this is in there, is 5% for nothing. I mean, <laughs> um, is that a good yes joke? Great yes joke. Pretty good yes joke? Okay, Great good. Yes good. Um, so what, what do we used to call that? The messy, messy song? The Yeah, the sloppy Bruford song. Sloppy something. It's like 35 seconds of just like, just great sloppy prog noise uh it's great fragile as great of an album as it is they had this brilliant idea for each of them to have a track where they could do whatever they wanted and all five of them are disasters you know, <laughs> yeah. like uh, it's just like what it's, it's true it's you true know? no my first one would be perpetual change which is the closer of the yes album and uh you know that's a bit of a journey i, I think you know yes is music I always, whenever I think of it, I always think journey, you know, they're kind of taking you somewhere and, and then probably pulling you back home at the end, almost like going on a ride at the fun park, perpetual change. I just love the dynamics. I love the sort of sweepy nature of it. And, uh, it would be uh, a top five yes tune for me. What do you got? That's a fabulous choice. Love it. And, uh, my number five. So you talk about the nine lives of yes, mine comes from one of the later lives. So this is a nerdy choice, but it's also an amazing song. It's Homeworld, The Ladder. It's the opener off The Ladder, which is the 1999 album. And oh, wow. uh, it's a long epic. It's about 11 minutes long, I think. And just goes through some beautiful movements. And the outro is really powerful. And 
Um, you know, this was, I was 19 when this album came out and got to see a couple different shows on the ladder tour. And, um, it, it's an awesome opening track. It's, it's one that if people are not familiar with, they should check it out. Cause it's a, it's a pretty, you know, outstanding musical movement from yes. It's one of those good long pieces that they do. Nice. That's number five. What do you got for four? Going for the one, uh, you know, kind of a more sort of, I, I liked when they got kind of straightforward and punchy, you know, there was nothing, uh, nothing too uh, ambitious about it. It was just kind of a nice, you know, rock pop type track of the time, but uh, love that one off of the uh, album going for the one going for the one. (laughs) So, uh, so that would be fourth on my list. What, uh, what do you got next? I've got South side of the sky off fragile. The piano break that Wakeman does is, is just legendary. And it's a very emotional song, got a thick groove. I, I love the Bill Bruford era of Yes. I, you know, Ellen White's great and all, but there was something just about Bruford and the way that he played that was sure, such sure. a signature part of the band's sound. And he's really carrying the groove there. And, and again, a little bit of a longer piece, kind of the underrated song on Fragile. You know, Roundabout gets a lot of attention, but uh, I love South Side of the Sky. You know, you mentioned Bruford. One of the things we got to throw out there is on the Yes Laser Disc, you know, we always got a giggle out of watching Bill Bruford play like the 1980s uh, electronic pads because yeah. because he sort of took on that role because obviously, you know, the, the reunion was bringing back pretty much anyone who had ever been in the band. And and so Alan White was playing the the um, acoustic drums, if you will. And, and Bruford kind of was doing all this stuff on these electric pads. And it was it's so funny to see this guy who was like such a staple of 70s progressive drumming. Um, to be up there, like, you know, knocking around on all these like, uh, electronic, you know, black 1980s drum pads, you know, it always kind of cracked us up, but yeah, great drummer. I mean, the guy's fantastic. What's your number three team? I've got, and you and I, it's, it's hard to, I mean, close to the edge to me is almost like just one big giant song. So it's kind of hard to sometimes parse that apart and it's hard to pick which one you want to go with off of that one. But, you know, you talk about a journey. I just close to the edge is just such a special record, but I really love in you and I, you could easily go with close to the edge as well. Um, I mean, Siberian Katru is amazing too. So it's like, it's hard to pick the three, but I, I think I'm going with in you and I as sort of a, anybody who's remotely interested in musicianship needs to listen to close to the edge early and often. So what's next for you? It's an awesome choice. Always one of the high points of a yes show for sure. Number three for me is The Calling, the opening track off talk. Should have been a big hit for the band. I know one of the famous stories about The Calling is that David Letterman loved it. He heard it on the radio and he said, who is this? And when he found out it was yes, he immediately had them come in and play the song Uh, on the show. But But it never really took off. They had all sorts of problems with the label during the talk release and the tour that that is still one of my favorite yes albums i love the talk album yeah. and it's the opening track and i think it's one of the strongest songs the band ever did it's it's very raven but you got some good stuff from alan white on drums and you know tony k on some keyboard work it, it's to me one of the most cohesive songs from the band on the talk album so yeah i love the calling that's number three for me all right we got two more t what is your new world dose I'll stick with talk and I'll go with the track following and it's, I am waiting. It's, it's one that, uh, you know, I've always loved, you know, and, and I like the talk record too. I think there's some really cool stuff on there. The endless dream piece at the end is really nice. We got to see that live, which was, which was cool as well. But I am waiting is a gorgeous song. 
and one that kind of goes through these different dynamics. It's a beautiful guitar. Really, really gorgeous. I love that song. I always, always have. What's next for you? I love I Am Waiting. That's I love that choice, man. That would probably be my number six if I needed to uh, expand this thing. So I'm glad you chose that one. Number two for me is uh, Shoot High, Aim Low off of Big Generator. It's, it's a real Yes fan kind of favorite. You know, if you listen to podcasts of Yes fans and, and real nerdy Yes stuff, as I listen to frequently, this is certainly a, a fan favorite. Big Generator is not uh, an album that you go to a whole lot. It's got some real high points, but you, you could tell the band wasn't particularly working well together during that phase. But Shoot High, Aim Low, just everything comes together. It's got atmosphere. It's understated, but then it's got this huge explosion kind of in the middle and at the end. And it's really, really good. Raven takes over the lead vocal and his voice is just dynamic at this point, you know? So that's my number two. All right, TR, number ones. What do you got at the top of the list? I've got to go with Starship Trooper. Um, It's just, it's brilliant. I mean, three parts, a wonderful 70s trilogy and Worm has always been one of my just favorite pieces of music of all time. You know, if you were to actually uh, not necessarily worry about full songs or, but just, you know, if you were to kind of look at sections and look at just pieces, even within full songs, I mean, that closing of Worm is just spectacular. And, uh, and that's Steve Howe, you know, that uh, sort of came up with that and obviously plays the lead part over it. But, you know, you talked, um, during the um, Kid A episode about how everybody has like that thing they play when they get the instrument in their hand, you know, it's sort of that go-to almost like a warm-up type thing. And, you know, within the first minute of holding a guitar, I'm playing worm, you know, it's a, it's a C chord where you're kind of adding the three up and down the neck. It just makes it fun to play, but man, it's beautiful. It's just an awesome thing. And, and I love what leads up to it as well. You know, those first two sections of Star, Starship Trooper are great. And the way it kicks into Worm is fantastic. So, I mean, I, I think it's their peak and I think it's just a, a brilliant uh, piece of music by these guys. And one of the better rock long form-ish tunes ever and one of the best rock trilogy tunes ever. And I just love it. So, Nubs, what is at the top of your list? I'm interested in this one. I just want to give you kudos for your top five. I mean, you spanned three decades, a ton of different albums and how many different sounds and how many different members. So. That's a good yes, top five in terms of all the ground that it covers. So see, my number one is Heart of the Sunrise. Um, just a perfect song. Absolutely perfect. And probably the single most emotionally driven piece of music I've ever heard in the rock world. You know, just the, the epic nature of it, the way it slows down at the end. And it's got catchiness in a really unique way, but more than anything, it's just incredibly dramatic. You know, it's got that kind of cinematic thing going on that Yas was able to do. And it, it defines progressive rock, in my opinion. I mean, if an alien came from outer space and said, hey, what's this prog thing? Number one, I'd say, what's wrong with you? That's your question? Like, that's what you want to know? But then I would say, here, listen to Heart of the Sunrise by Yas, because it's, it's quintessentially prog in every single way. And, uh, and I still love it. And I listened to it, you know, how many thousands of times have I listened to this song in my life? And it never gets old. I mean, it yeah. truly never gets old. That's great. It's an incredible song. All right. See, solid top five work. Love it. So Owner of a Lonely Heart, not on our top fives. And I have to say, I'm surprised this next track was not on yours because I believe you've always kind of been pretty, uh, I, th- I think you've always liked it. And you mentioned it earlier as a high point of the live show that you saw. So let's go to track two, Hold On. 
I thought that was one of your favorites. See, correct me if I am wrong, but I, uh, I thought you've always been pretty fond of Hold On. Uh, I like Hold On. There are other uh, tracks on this one that I like better, but it, it does r- certainly make me think of that live show during the Wondrous Story. And I mean, you could just tell people really were happy to hear this one. And, you know, they had gotten the crowd kind of charged up, but uh, um, it's a great track, too. You know, it's uh, I mean, listen, this this record is on a mission, right? This record is on a mission to be digestible, to be commercial. And it's got, you know, some some great grooves and some great licks and some great hooks and hold on kind of covers all those it's a it's a nice track too for this one certainly but then you get to that middle section again and it's this offbeat kind of acapella thing with some keyboards in the background i i used to adore listening to the middle section i i would listen to this song all the time just to get to that middle that talk the simple smile thing i i just thought it was so clever so creative all right t let's get you know you can't uh you can't be prog without getting a little sitar in there every once in a while, right? A little electronic sitar? Yeah, <laughs> yeah a little fake sitar. <laughs> Nothing says 80s prog like fake sitar. And that's what you get with It Can Happen. You finally get kind of the the familiar vocal style of yes the anderson squire and raven only adds to it but you can really hear squire's background vocals on this song and it's a lot of john anderson being john anderson you know it's like yeah. what people like about anderson really shines through i think and it can happen yeah i mean squire's vocals are so freaking important to this band you know and and i don't know how many people beyond hardcore yes fans realize that but you know Squire's vocals blend great with Rabin. They blend great with John. Uh, they were great on their own on Fish Out of Water. I mean, he's he's a great vocalist. And obviously we know, you know, I just think of him playing that Rickenbacker. You know, I mean, we know the kind of bass player he is. And he has a great little bass lick that we just heard underneath the fake sitar, um, which I think really adds to that sort of second layer of the verses. But I like it can happen. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Squire was primarily responsible for kind of the... Uh, composition of this one i think it's very chris squire i mean it was it was a yeah. group effort but without question his his voice is the loudest in terms of the uh the music on this one no doubt yeah yeah i love this song i think it's a uh, a really great way to kind of pull back a little bit for track three all these songs could have been hits there's, there's no shortage of hooks and hits here but i love the sitar piece and the the drum hits and then the bass lick that squire brings in i think it can happens really good big fan from fake sitar, we go to fake xylophone and a little do 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 with changes. Well, Maestro, I don't think you chose that clip by accident. Well done, as always. Why don't you talk about your thoughts on changes? That middle section's amazing. God, it's so good. I mean, Raven's voice is just... Raven was a pro, man. I mean, he was a pro. He was a, a great player, a great songwriter, a great singer. He even wore eyeliner on stage. I mean, come on like <laughs> not the only other guy that pulled that off was nigel tufnell you know i mean uh so 
I'm a big Rabin guy and changes is very, very much Trevor Rabin. Now the whole lead in part is cool. I used to hate it when I was little. I was like, what this is frantic and weird, but in, I don't know how many people catch it, but during the last third of that sort of chaotic intro, you're hearing the main lick and it's buried. But you realize that, oh, they're doing something here. This is on time. This is not some goofy, you know, uh, mixed time signature thing just for the sake of it. So, you know, if you haven't heard that, listen for it next time because you can hear the main 4-4 lick being played underneath this frantic intro. And it's really cool. And it all comes in on time. And it's just awesome. Changes is a masterpiece, I think, of you know, 80s um, pop rock. And it's a phenomenal chorus that jams without overcooking it. The middle section we just played is outstanding. Uh, I like the way it closes. It's got two parts. I mean, what's there not to love about changes, Nub? I think it was the band saying, maybe not consciously, but we're still a prog rock band and we can still do the things that we used to do. I mean, it's six minutes long, but it doesn't feel like that at all. And you called it a pop yeah. song. I call it a prog song. You know what? We're both right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it kind of marries those two ideas perfectly. And again, Raven's so important. You know, not only did he bring On Over Lonely Heart to the band and deliver them their first top hit, but, you know, Song Like Changes is something that he also showed his own chops. You know, this was, um, this was not just a guy who could write pop songs. He also could fit into Yes really flawlessly in terms of that prog idea and changes really is the idea of that. And it continues if you flip the record over to side two, because I mean, and t- by the way, T, how about that side one? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I do only heart through changes. It, yeah. I, I, I don't know if it gets a whole lot better. That's pretty sick. Yeah. So flip it over and you got your Grammy winner, which is the two minutes and seven seconds known as cinema. Oh, tease, tease. I want to hear the end of that. (laughs) So with changes, they created six minutes that felt like three minutes. With cinema, they created two minutes that felt like 10 minutes. You know, it's just, you can't believe how much they squeezed into this really short That's well said. That's well said. It it really does feel longer than two minutes and, uh, you know. You win a Grammy, you did something right, I guess. Perfect lead into, again, the second single off the album. And oh, again, I, I would say maybe should have been bigger hit just because of its complete overt commercialism. And I mean that as a compliment in this case. And that is leave it. First getting into Yes, I got to tell you, I didn't care much about Leave It. It was usually just a way to get to, you know, one of my favorite songs later in the album. This song has aged tremendously well for me. So, I, so well, I think I was excited to talk about Leave It because I was, I was going to say exactly what you just said as far as how it's aged. And here's why. We've talked on the old podcast here about your favorite genre of music. 
festival rock, right? Yes, we we have. Yes. yes. Okay. Now listen, if you turn on, I'll just say Alt Nation on Sirius, because I think that's like the ultimate festival rock station. This is what you're hearing. I mean, th- this holds up so well. Now, I don't think they intended to be, uh, you know, professorial about what music was going to come in the uh, 2015s, 2020s. But I'll tell you what, you could put this on Alt Nation right now and it'd be a hit. People would be like, what is that? Who is that? That's a cool, hip, fresh sound, probably made in some DIY studio, some, you know, trio in San Francisco or something. No, this is 1983. Yes, it holds up really well. And it's like, I almost would venture to say that Leave It by Yes might be the first festival rock song. Nubs, what do you think of that take? I love the take. The birthplace of festival rock. Who would have thought it came from Yes? (laughs) See, now you're going to like it. You're going to start liking festival rock now. (laughs) If it sounded like this, I would like it. But this song has just, um, it's gotten better and better with every few years. I think a big shout out has to go to Alan White for his electronic drums performance. I mean, the, the groove on this is so deep. And, um, you know, again, another dance floor song. There was a 12 inch remix of this as well that I think did pretty well. But Leave It's kind of got the whole package, you know, but it, it doesn't sound like anything Yes ever did aside from it. But this song is just, I don't know, it's a special part of the Yes catalog for sure. All right, on to maybe the only Dufferoo. The only tougher on the album, if you will, and that is our song. Really sounds like something off drama. And and I love drama, but it it I don't know. It's the only song that kind of sounds like it doesn't belong in this album, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, you kind of got the, I always get the feeling when I hear this, that they were going for something old school, yes, but then couldn't quite get it there because they were getting pulled probably by horn in the direction of saying, we got to make sure that this fits with the rest of the album. And we got to make sure that this doesn't venture too far away musically or, or production wise. It's not awful. Um, but you know, yeah, it's going nine for nine which they've pretty much done to this point. I mean, you know, what the hell? I, I think they're allowed one pass, which our song kind of is. It's not awful, but it's, you know, pretty high bar too when you look at the remaining eight tracks. I think that's a big part of it. You know, just, yeah, it doesn't quite measure up to uh, the rest of the album. And, and you Dufferoo might even be a little heavy, but it, regardless, it's, it's certainly the song that was the least impressive on this album and you you sure as hell will not say that about track 8 which is City of Love Boy if you could see the air instruments that are being played over here guys yeah, exactly. It was pretty obnoxious, I must say, uh, We the way we were. I think I was going from drum to guitar and you were drumming and I don't know what, you know, did you play some keyboards? I don't know what the hell else we were doing. I have to hit the guitar every time I hear that section of the song. Yeah. yeah. This was one of those hand-delivered Trevor Rabin compositions, kind of a finished deal. And you can hear it. It's a very complete song. Again, kind of like, you know, what we mentioned with Leave It. 
maybe should have been bigger hit. I don't know. It was, it was never a single, but it is a crowd favorite at yes shows when they're performing in this uh, orientation. Killer song. I love the duality of this kind of punchy verse with the, you know, and Squire's really walking it through with that bass part. I guess you got to give the kick drum a little credit there too. And then into this very, you know, catchy commercial type chorus. And it sort of takes you back and forth. And then obviously you have, you know, we just played a couple of fairly complicated, you know, timing licks, uh, combining guitar and bass and keys and all those things together. And it's a, yeah, it's a great song. Really, really. I, I always kind of think of City of Love and the song that follows as sort of the uh, almost like a, it could be a long form in a way. I mean, they're two different songs, but they close up. You you can't listen to one without listening to the other because I think they both just help you close this one up so nicely. So yeah, City of Love's great. Definitely a top 10 song for me too, and, and almost cracked the top five. It's on the list and, and really almost made it. I've always loved the chorus of it. I just think it's one of those really rock solid choruses. You could build anything around that chorus and make a delightful song. All right. The last track hearts. This is like kind of the epic. This is the only track on 90125 that crosses a seven minute mark. And uh, let's see how 90125 ends. Here's hearts. Good work again, Maestro. You nailed the pinnacle of the song. It kind of builds towards that. Like the whole first couple minutes, you're just thinking, gosh, I hope this opens up into this melody being really heavy. And it does. It kind of does exactly what the, you want the song to do and builds up to this great outro. Yeah. I mean, this probably would crack the top five. We did decide in advance that we were going to not include any 90125 songs in the top five. But if we were, this probably would be in it. It's a brilliant way to close this. And I love the way it, it, it takes its time. You know, I, I do think that I'm sure Trevor Horn didn't necessarily want a song past seven minutes, but this, th- this really works and it's modern Prague, which I think most of this album really is. And, you know, sort of set a tone for how you can take a core sound and turn it into a modern sound, which I think is the beauty of 90125. And I think hearts is the pinnacle of that. It's a fantastic closer. I wish I could be more critical uh, of these nine tracks than I have been, but it's very difficult to do. And I love the way it closes out. See, let's do a little assessment here. And uh, I want to know what you think. Does 90125 matter in the grand scheme of things? What do you think? Well, I think for those that really dug into it, it does because, you know, you're taking a band that was at a crossroads and you're taking a band that had to figure out whether it was personnel, whether it was instrumentation, whether it was songwriting, how to maintain relevancy heading into a time period in 1983 where that wasn't easy. Um, There was a lot of competition out there. You had uh, rock coming into play from a sort of hair metal standpoint. Still a lot of classic rock bands that were really um, popular on radio. And, you know, if you were kind of one of these prog groups, you kind of had to say, what are we going to do? to um, not venture too far away from being ourselves, but to um, make sure that we're moving forward. And adding Trevor Rabin was a big step 
and modernizing their sound was a big step. And the thing I love about 90125 is it fits into, I'll use the word you keep using on these episodes of canon. It fits into the yes canon really nicely. It doesn't sound not like yes. Okay. Now some of their stuff after this got a little bit sort of ventured out a little bit to where it wasn't fully true to kind of what they are and always have been. The thing I love about 90125 is it's definitively yes, but it's a modern turn and a modern sort of evolution of the group, which I think they did in a very healthy way. It's not too long. It's efficient. As indulgent as the 80s were, I think they kept this tight. They, they were very thoughtful. And I give Trevor Horn a lot of credit on this as well in putting together something that yes, fans could appreciate, even those that went further back, but also new fans could appreciate. And I guarantee you this album got a lot more people into close to the edge and into the yes album and into some of those more classic elements. And obviously they were able to go forward and establish a truly multi-decade career, which is difficult for any band to do. That's my take. What do you think? Nub did 90125 matter? Um, yes, it mattered. The, uh, it's the ultimate, yes. Yes. <laughs> it's the ultimate gateway drug to prog rock and to the yes catalog, simply put. And without this album, yes, probably dies a very slow death, maybe even a very quick death because there was really no future for the band at this time. I think it says something about these guys, just as people and artists that they were able to take in this new member, bring back Tony K and create an album that sounds like it's a band that's been together forever. You know, there, there's such a cohesiveness on this album. It doesn't sound like a Trevor Rabin solo album or yes with a new guy. It just sounds like a modern version of yes. And I think you nailed that perfectly, but very, very simply put see without 90125, yes is gone. And that wouldn't be a good thing for anybody. Most notably, I, I would have missed out on many years of being a complete nerd if this album had not come out and uh, given me some prog fuel to get me through <laughs> the last, you know, 41 years. So, all right, T, final analysis. Let's do the final cut. Is 90125 on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it going in the dreaded for sale bin? T, what's your final cut? Well, for anyone that's actually been listening, this probably won't be a big surprise, but I am putting it on the turntable because I think it's one of the best records of the 80s, certainly the front half of the decade. I think it was extremely thoughtful in making sure that you kept the roots of this band while also modernizing this band. It's Trevor Rabin at his best. He did some great work with Yes in the couple albums that followed, but top to bottom, this is his best work and I'm a huge fan and I think he's just an incredible talent and you put all those things together and you got 90125 and for me it's on the turntable how about for you nub we'll need two copies t because it's on the turntable for me as well it sounds as fresh as ever it has held up extremely well you know owner of a lonely heart it, it was a little overdone do i need to hear that song many more times probably not but it's not about that it's about the rest of the album it's about the other eight songs uh in in the way that they comprise just this new and unique sound that yes found and again if you're into yes the beauty is you get to hear a lot of different things and 90215 stands out as that so it's an album i continue to listen to top to bottom regularly so it is on the turntable for me all right t so uh let's close up shop here and let's uh, check in with old dolores here and let's see what is in your head 
All right, T, three songs that you cannot get out of your head right now. The first is by the Yellow Magic Orchestra, you know, an early pioneer innovator of uh, electronic music. It's Rydeen. The second is by XTC. It senses working over time, one of their best. And the third, a little something different, is the Foo Fighters, Bridges Burning, which is one of my favorites from those guys. Track one on their great album, Wasting Light. Nubs, what's in your head, buddy? I've got Spitting Games by Snow Patrol. This is off my favorite Snow Patrol album, Final Straw. It's an album I'd love to do at some point on the podcast. But next, I've got a rather obscure song from a band we both love, Sensefield, and that is Different Times. This is off the Building album, so long before they polished up their sound when they were a little bit more of an emo group. Different Times is a really killer song. And then lastly, maybe a surprise to you, a song that I really like from you know last decade, and that is Lifehouse hanging by a moment. I've always liked that song. It is not a band that I'm super into or anything like that. But <laughs> again, I kind of revisited that song. It's like, oh, this song's actually pretty good. So Are they Christian rock? Lifehouse? Christian I, rock? I think they're in that ambiguous faith plus one sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the creed thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. T, uh, we explored 90125. We came, we saw, we conquered. We both put it on the turntable. Loved hearing your insight. Loved your top five yes songs. And let's hope that a new generation of fans can discover this album and all the good things that Yes have done for music. What do you think? I agree, buddy. Nice pick. Thanks. You got it. I want everybody to follow us on our social media outlets. Leave us some feedback. Make a request. We got a request episode coming up here in a couple of weeks. So we are always looking to fulfill your requests. Please take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you for episode 37 of Two Twins and an album. Two That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.